Blog Talk Radio. You ain't nothing but a Mm-hmm. 
Well, Bill, this is like um, I read, this is like what introduced you to music and uh, really what got you going. And uh, that uh, you at 13 years old, after when you were hearing all that, went to the Palladium Ballroom to see James Brown. At, uh, how, what, how old were you? <laughs> that was I was 13, crazy. 1963. But uh, wow. I'll tell you a little bit about Elvis, what lit my fuse was, yeah. you know, I was like five years old and toddling through life in kindergarten and I think I'd gotten the ballad of Davy Crockett single and, mm-hmm. and probably Deo by Bellafani. But, you know, mm-hmm. one day in the afternoon I had on the radio at home and this song came on with those drums and it, it just felt like a nuclear explosion, at least in my mm-hmm. brain was mm-hmm. happening. And uh it was like getting oh, yeah. whiplash or something. But it it just felt like everything in the world had changed. It really did. And then I waited about, I think it was a month, and he was on the Ed Sullivan show. And not only was that single great, but Elvis Live was even better. (laughs) And I just felt like that was my guy. You know, when you're young, you kind of have what they call now Power Rangers, but like things that you identify with that make you feel strong and part of the world. And Elvis Presley and that Pompadour is just truly my Power Ranger of 1956. And uh, Mm -hmm. I almost got to see him live. He, He came to Houston that fall, but... My mother was, mm-hmm. let's see, then she would have been seven months pregnant with my younger brother. And, you know, oh, I wow. begged and pleaded, and she just said, you know, Bill, if it had been, if I'd have been like five months pregnant, I probably would have taken you, but just <laughs> that kind of mayhem. And, you know, back then, the, the, the word of mouth on Elvis was that his audiences were psychotic. They went crazy, kind of like Beatlemania oh, eight wow. years later. So mm-hmm. I, I missed Elvis. I oh, always I say I missed him by, by two months. If my mom hadn't been seven months pregnant, but five, I know she would have taken me because she was always so kind. I take her; uh, she'd take me to the grocery store with her and always buy me the new Elvis single whenever we went. So she she was very supportive of my psychotic love of rock and roll, (laughs) much to her chagrin later. But that's great. (laughs) You know, that's what parents are for, right? To uh, encourage your craziness. Well, no, you know, I want you know to hear something. the story about you and James Brown in 1963. <laughs> I want to hear about that well, real quick. Okay, so the start That's of 63, uh, mm-hmm. his album, I think it was the start, maybe the middle of 63, his album Live at the Apollo had come out. And my brother was two years older, so I was 13 and he was 15. And, you know, at 15 in high school in Houston, you really started getting into music like that just because it was kind of a cool thing to mm-hmm. do. So uh, the Palladium Ballroom was in uh, Houston. Uh, it was in the uh, it was a black nightclub, so it was in the black part of town. Houston was extremely segregated back then. So my brother and mm-hmm. his buddies decided to go, and you know I begged and pleaded, and my mom at the last minute made my brother take me with him, which he should have done anyway. But, oh wow! So we get over to the Palladium, and it's just insanely crowded. They had these uh, deputy sheriffs guarding the door, but. They were black also. I mean, really, it was cool to go there. But we, being high school kids, you know, they just let us in. And believe it or not, we got our table, you know, semi-near the front. And we're able, able to order these little bottles of champagne, which were kind of like cheesy beer and oh, champagne yeah, mixed I together. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. yeah. But, you know, Houston, oh, it was wow. lawless in that part of town. And so we had a few of those. And then the review started. And I think Bobby Bird came out first. And then uh, Vicki Anderson and two or three more singers. It was um, – MC named King Coleman, and then, man, James Brown came on. And wow. for the oh, next wow. three hours, it was just pandemonium. And in the middle of it all, I was going to say, in the middle of it all, I got up on top of the table and started dancing. <laughs> Are you serious? Oh, <laughs> yeah, no, I couldn't funny. help myself. And hey, for the well, next, I got to tell, the- tell you a story where um, how I got into Joan Jett. When we designed some albums for Joan was that they invited me down to this place, you know, in New York, Bill and Holly, and then, you know, I didn't know what to expect. She was she was going to play. I was going to see what she was. And uh, you know who she opened for? James Brown. Oh, my she goodness. Opened, uh, yeah, and, and nobody knows about it. It's like everybody says, what? They can't remember it. But I saw her opening up for James Brown. It was an incredible show. Oh. I said, that's it in my life, you know, Bill, Holly? <laughs> that's the yin and the I yang. I can't but- believe no, this is funny. You were so you were dancing on the table. You went to see James <laughs> Brown, and uh, I couldn't help it, man. So you know? Yeah. No. Oh, what, what, what came and, to be from that night was the Palladium Ballroom just became yeah. our 
absolute uh, Valhalla, man. Like every weekend we would go there, and I saw everybody from Aretha Franklin to the Temptations to Otis really? Redding to Wilson Pickett to the Impressions, Dude. just on oh and on God. and on. But probably with some of the great shows every uh, Christmas Eve, Bobby Bland would play. Oh, Lordy. Wow. Man, the best singer that ever Oh, my lived. gosh. Yeah, and then on New Year's Eve, on New Year's Eve, BB yeah. King would play. So oh, no. that was my growing up, you know, until uh, Martin Luther King got murdered and sort of the whole scene mm-hmm. got shut mm-hmm. down for integration in Houston. It was just, it was the greatest place in the world I've ever been. Seriously, the best shows wow. I ever saw in my mm-hmm. life were at the Palladium Ballroom. Hey, Every week. Really? Hey, hey, Bill, I want to ask you. Uh, you had a band called the Bizarros. What interested me is you were playing with Sterling Morrison, right? Yeah, it kind of came to be. I just uh, Sterling was getting his Ph.D. in Austin at University of Texas, and I met him in a bar accidentally and kind of flushed him out of his happily married life and tricked him into joining our band, The Bizarros, <laughs> which was so much fun. Because, oh, that's funny. You know, t- ten wow. years later, I got to work with Lou Reed, and when Lou found out I knew Sterling and had played with Sterling, he said something like, you know, Bill, we have something in common that over only four people on the planet have in common. I said, what's that, Lou? Wow. We both played with Sterling Morrison. Unbelievable. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's funny. That is a great story. But Sterling, really Sterling had a voluminous memory of all things that happened to him with the Velvets. Mm-hmm. I mean, I used to call VU Velvet University. But wow. when I first met Lou, he made it very clear. He said to me the very first words Lou, read, Lou Reed ever said to me after hello were, let's get one thing straight. Sterling remembers everything, and I remember nothing. Because <laughs> he did right. not We've want me that. always talking about <laughs> You know, he did I not heard... want me just pumping for velvet stuff. Oh my god! Wow, that is so funny. He was cool, but he, daddy. yeah, he. I'll never. I thought he was mad at me because I walked in the studio to meet him, and he just looked at me and said, "Come with me." I go like, because you know, Lou Reed's <laughs> reputation precedes <laughs> it. What, the reason I got uh-huh. to do his publicity is because the New York publicist that was working with Lou, he'd made her cry the first time they ever spoke. Wow. So they flew oh, me no. in from L.A. and said, you know, lose your guy, Bill. You handle him. We don't want to know anything about it. <laughs> I want to, oh, I want to read God. this quote that I read you wrote. You said, it was a good time to be in the music industry. I got to go to Paris with the Velvet Underground first-class ticket, four-star hotel, the whole deal. That's oh, amazing. Wasn't that sweet, That's man? That's amazing. Yeah. You know, I it, wanted to And you know who paid you. for it? Cartier. Lou. Lou. Cartier, really? the jewelry company. Yep, they had a oh uh, God, foundation so and a museum. They were the wow. sponsor, and they flew. Great. You know, when Lou found out they were going, he called me up and said, "You want to go to Paris?" I said, "Oh yeah." <laughs> <laughs> oh. And you That's know that that was a great trip because Lou and Sterling had been estranged for uh-huh. ten years. They'd gotten gotten in kind really? of a fight over reissues and stuff. And yeah. Sterling could be very petulant. You know, he just like he he didn't mind starting a fight. So they hadn't spoken mm-hmm. and had exchanged lawsuits. And we got to Paris, man. It was like a love fest from the first day. Oh, sure. Wow. It was almost like seeing like families that had been separated at birth get back mm-hmm. together. I've never seen anything That's so sweet great. in my oh, life. Really? It was, and Billy story. Name was there from the factory. And it was just right. Nico's son, That's Ari, was great. with us. It was beautiful. Wow. Nico was so dead you, by then. And I'm sure she would have been there. Yeah, you can't yeah. go to Paris and be upset. You know what I wanted to ask you, Bill, <laughs> and I think it would be really good, Spence, is have Bill maybe talk about how we just started about talking about the um, concerts that he went to see and then just a little bit about how you got into the music industry and how it, right. how that transpired. So why don't yeah. you go ahead and tell sure. us a little bit about that so our listeners can hear that. Yeah. So in, then we'll in the 60s, yeah. you know, okay. So in the 60s, I got a drum kit because I saw the Rolling Stones and thought, like, the only thing I ever want to be in my life is somebody like Charlie Watts. So I bought a drum kit. Well, actually, my dad bought me the kit. Uh, Same color and make as Charlie's kit, of course. Tried to start dressing like Charlie. Tried to start playing like Charlie, which, unfortunately, I could not. Oh, how funny. So I I joined a band in Houston. We got going. It was called the Aggregation. And uh, before you knew it, you know, I kind of figured, like, drums weren't going to be my life. So when I started going to school in Austin, I became a typesetter on the on the newspaper there. And a wow. friend of mine started mm-hmm. a paper, and he said, will you be the typesetter? I said, well, you know, I kind of want to find something else to do. And he goes, like, if you'll be the typesetter, I'll let you be the music editor. Whoa. And I said, well, you know, I've never written. And he goes, that's okay. None of the clowns on this paper have either. So <laughs> it's called the Austin Sun, 
and I started writing about music and, uh, you know, continued to play some, but mainly started writing. And then I got a job with the public television station there to do all the press on the new show, Austin City Limits, and really, really mm-hmm. kind of got my career going in that direction and started a radio show in Austin called Twine Time. But uh, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I got an offer from the L.A. Weekly that was starting in L.A. said, you want to come out here and be the music editor? And I'd never been Love to L.A. LA all you ever heard was yeah. L.A. is plastic. But I got out there, man. It was a scene that was exploding with X and the Blasters and all those great mm-hmm. bands. So I started doing that for a few years. And uh, I loved writing, but I didn't like being an editor because it was kind of secondhand. And before you knew it, I had a friend at Slash Records, and they say, well, you want to be our publicist? I said, yeah, why not? And that's how I got into publicity. I worked at Slash two years and then Warner Brothers bought Slash, so I worked at uh, Warner Brothers another 20 years just doing press for all these incredible bands on Warner Brothers, Sire, Reprise. You know, we, that, that not only was that label the greatest record label in history, I think it had the greatest roster band for band of any label that ever existed. I mean, it's just every day was just, God, and after I started working with all these bands from, you know, like Neil Young and The Replacements and R.E.M. and Green Day and Lou Reed, it just was, I, I would go to work every day and go like, they're going to make me pay to work here, you know, <laughs> and I would have. That's how much fun it was every day for 20 years, even when it started getting a little hinky with, you know, all the AOL Time Warner shenanigans and mm-hmm. changing chairmans. But, you know, I just always remembered it was always about the music and to never let mm-hmm. that other stuff get in the way of, of really trying to represent represent the bands to the very best of my ability because I thought they deserved it. Yeah, it's true. I loved them. I loved the music. I still do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, that that's how, how I kind of got into that. Involved? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's how I got into that. For, yeah. And then uh, when I left Warner's after 20 years, I went to work for Neil Young for three years. I got to his office. I go like, "What am I supposed oh, to I do?" Love and, Neil. Neil, and Neil and Neil just went like, "Oh, we'll figure something out." So <laughs> <laughs> just hanging out, you know, working He's on the awesome. archives, doing his press. Uh, he I invented like that. Neil. Well, him and he invented the electric car, the electric 1959 Lincoln with an engineer. So we could, we did all kinds of crazy stuff, but yeah, after that, I missed the label. I so I, I, yep. Oh yeah. He did, you know, he bought Lionel that. trains. He did all this stuff. Neil, really? if Neil does Seriously? not sit still, made movies. Just oh my gosh. Off. And then always wrote songs and toured. Oh yeah, man. If you, then he invented that Pono sound system. I'd already left, but so I did that for a few years. And then uh, Vanguard Records said, do you want to do A&R? And you know, I've always wanted to do A&R, but it was a little, uh, fearful fearful of me because I noticed the A&R guys were always the first guys at the labels to get fired because if their bands <laughs> didn't mm-hmm. sell, they got blamed. Yeah. You know, the press yeah. and the radio are like, well, you guys, you know, you suck, but you didn't sign that band. <laughs> so I, I kept my head down doing press for all those years, but I got to do uh, A&R at Vanguard for three years. And the mm-hmm. first signing I did there was Merle Haggard. Wow. Which is a great story I could tell you about Merle if you want me to. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Of course okay. you do. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so this his attorney said, you want to sign Merle Haggard? I go like, are you kidding? He's like the greatest country songwriter maybe ever. <laughs> so he goes, well, yeah. we'll go up to Lake Tahoe, you know, knock on yeah. the door of this hotel room and go in and talk to Merle. So I go like, okay, you know, I've known a few ex-cons in my life. I know how to talk to <laughs> ex-cons. So I knocked on the door. It's about noon, and Merle just sitting there. He goes, sit down. And he just gotten his breakfast delivered. And I'll tell you what, it took him 30 minutes to cut up his eggs, you know, because you got to remember ex-cons are never in a hurry because they've got all the time in the world. Right, so we just right. sat there, you know, it took him about an hour to eat breakfast. And then he <laughs> just looked at me in that, in that kind of thousand mile Merle stare and said, what do you want to do? I said, well, let's yeah. make a record. Aww. And he, and he said, uh, where are you from? Cause he could tell my accent. I go, Texas. And he goes, do you know Blaze Foley? And I go like, yeah, I used to run out, <laughs> run around with Blaze and Towns Van Zandt, except I left town so I wouldn't die, which both yeah. of them had done by then. And he goes like, I know 17 Blaze songs. How many you got? And I said, I think I got 23. And he goes like, let's make a record. <laughs> wow, and that was it, man. Never had, a, never had a weird word with Merle. Like, he would always tell me, like, call me between 11 and 11.15 in the morning. Because <laughs> he he was sitting in his chair, I guess, in his living room, and that was his 15 minutes to talk to the record label. That's funny. It was so much fun, man. I mean, I toured with him a little bit, and just watching a guy like Merle Haggard and talking to him how he wrote those songs. He told me once, I said, "How did you write today? I started loving you again." Because you know he'd married Bonnie Owens, the same woman, I think, three different times. So he goes, 
me and Bonnie were sitting in DFW, man. I just looked at her and said, today I started loving you again, baby. And he went, so I grabbed me, I grabbed me a hamburger sack and wrote it down. Wow, that's a great story. You know, I love he, that one. He, he just had all these incredible stories about his career, writing all those songs in his life. It was just, mm. God, I wish I'd tape recorded all those interviews because oh, yeah, that I just feel incredible. like in some ways, you know, Merle didn't play the uh, game. He, he, like, he wouldn't go to Nashville. He he didn't join. He asked me once, well, why didn't you come to Austin during the Willie and Waylon days in the seventies? And he's just like, man, I don't want to join no club. <laughs> and I used, I used to book him on TV shows in New York, and he'd always call me the day before the show and go like, can't do that show. I go like, Merle, it's tomorrow night. It's Letterman. He goes like, them streets there are too narrow for my bus. Wow. What it was, he didn't. You didn't get really paid good money to do those shows, and he was always like. What are you going to pay me? (laughs) (laughs) He was, but he was the best, you know, and right till the end, I always felt like Merle Haggard, really, he should be, his name should be on buildings and, and, and mountaintops, man, because he was so great. And God, think of that, you know, growing up in a box car in Bakersfield and going to prison, Mm -hmm. all the other country guys, they kind of talk the talk, man. That's where Merle was just what you thought he was. In fact, Johnny Cash used to say, Mm -hmm. like, Merle's the guy that went to prison. I just watched. <laughs> wow. Oh, did he uh, really? Oh, wow. Incredible story. Incredible story. Well, Merle, you know, Merle saw Johnny we love Merle saw Johnny Cash play San Quentin, and that's when Merle was sitting in the audience with the other prisoners and went like, I can do that. <laughs> so, so when he got out of prison, he became a country singer. And they I mean, he went to prison at 19. They, did they become friends? Yeah, they were friends. Hey, Bill, did Merle get along with Johnny Cash? Did they talk to each other? That's what yeah. I was saying. Yeah, did they become friends? Yeah. Yeah, Johnny was an album. That's too cool. You know, he never did time. Yeah, Johnny was a very, uh, you know, iconic. He made the Iwo Jima songs and the Native American albums. He, you know, he stood for what he believed in. He spoke up for right. convicts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Dude. For fun years working with Merle, I'll tell you. In and out a little bit. Are you coming yeah, in and out? I, I'm trying to see. Yeah, a little bit. Did you hear it too? A tiny yeah, bit. Are you bit. on a cordless bill? Yes, I am. That's all I got. Yeah. Okay. You know that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> You're fine. I'll let my landline go. You know. I got... No, okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. We all, we all. Trust me, I don't think there's very many people that have landlines in their house anymore. But you know what I want to do real away. quick? If you are listening to the show live, if you missed the beginning, it will be available on iTunes afterwards and also on Red Velvet Media, Blog Talk Radio, under the Indie Cafe. But um, what I also wanted to say is if you'd like to call in, our number is 347-677-1036. And there is a chat room that's open. You can um, tune in and, and join the chat room, and you'll listen live. You know, before we continue... Bill, what I thought we could do is also give – do you have a website you want to give out? for the? Because we are going to be talking about the Smithsonian rock and roll um, live right. yes. and photos and stuff. Smithsonian.com uh, has a section on okay. the website for books, and the books is, is okay. among those many featured. It's an incredible book company, not to mention their museum. So just Smithsonian.com. Mm-hmm. Why don't Great. we get right into yeah, you, that and talk about the book a little bit? Yeah, Bill, I want to ask you, what, what was your, let, let's start off with, what was the concept of doing the book? What inspired you to do the book? Well, here's what happened. Back in 92, I worked with the Flaming Lips and got along mm-hmm. very well with their tour manager. So flash forward 25 years, the tour manager, Matt Litz, had become the director of marketing at Smithsonian Books. And he called me up and said, we have a book idea. Do you want to write it? And I, I went like, Whatever it is, I'll do it. You know, I'm not proud, man. I would love to write. I always wanted to write a book about music. But yeah. he said the idea was we're going to ask all the fans around America to submit the pictures they've taken throughout the course of their lives to our website, and then we'll go through all their submissions and pick out mm-hmm. two or 300 and make a book out of them. So, and that's what wow. we did. We, uh, we got four th- over 4,000 pictures. And we narrowed it down to where I narrowed it down to about 250 bands I thought should be in the book, but because mm-hmm. of size mm-hmm. restrictions, we were only able to use 142 bands. But mm-hmm. there are 250 pictures because some bands obviously had more than one picture. So right. we started working on it in the start of 2016, and by oh. the end of that year, we had all the pictures chosen. And then my job was to, after choosing the pictures with the photo editor Susan Brisk. 
was to go through all of the bands and write essays about every one. And that, that took me oh, about wow. a month. I mean, there's, yeah, there's like 500 word essays, which don't yeah. seem very long, but it's kind of hard to, it's harder, I think, to write sure. short than it is to write, write long because you just yeah, have to really mm-hmm. fine tune what you use. Right. So that's how it all came to be. I mean, there's some back and forth about who should be in the book. There's a few bands I fought for and lost, and uh, there's a few bands that the Smithsonian felt were important to rock and roll, as well as having great photos of them. And they, of course, went in the book because, you know, you have to compromise sometimes in a project like this. It mm-hmm. wasn't my book. Mm-hmm. It was our book. I just happened to be the writer and uh, picked the band. So it was really fun to do it. And at the end of it, you know, I look back at it and go, wow, man, I did all that. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> when did I find the time? Because I, I was still working at a record label then. Oh, really? Which one? Yeah, don't tell Which them. Uh, Concord. Concord had oh, bought wow. Vanguard, so I was, wow, I was still right. working at Concord. So. Oh, that's a lot of work. We'll keep, we'll keep it our secret to uh, not tell them I was doing outside work while I was on their job, okay? As I went through the book, I was noticing <laughs> that you brought in MC5, which I think is really important, mm-hmm. because they've been brought up in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know this, and they always get shot down, and nobody mm-hmm. knows about them. It's like they're one of the founders of so many music, uh, you know, oh. the foundation, right? Well, oh, we'll talk about a band whose social consciousness totally drove their music. The MC5 was almost scary in the late 60s because they were so adamant about you know social revolution and that right. got them in a lot of trouble mm-hmm. it kind of cost them their career if you really want to know the truth because the record stations radio stations would not embrace them record mm-hmm. labels like in uh, lecture signed them but only for a couple of records and they didn't really dilute what they were saying that song kick out the jams mf you know they just they laid it all on the line and i think they don't get the credit they should for bringing right. social awareness to music. It was interesting when I did the bookstore signing here. I, when I do these bookstore signings, I always try to get an artist who's in the book. And the very gracious and talented Wayne from MC5 did the book mm. signing with me, and we did a talk oh, afterwards great. that was so, wow. so electrifying. He's writing his own book, too, now. And I can't say wow. enough good things about Wayne. Yeah. You know, he, he went to prison for a while for uh, drug dealing, and now he has a project called. Uh, Guitars behind bars that he gives guitars to prisoners. Oh, really? So they weren't wow. kidding around. The MC5 believed in what they said. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, that was really know, fun working yeah. with him. Why don't you talk about some of the groups you had in the book that maybe, yeah. you know what I mean, were kind of like big things with you? Yeah, well, you I know, see, like I, I said, in 68. All those, yeah. Mm-hmm. The 67, 68, 66, actually, in Houston. A band started coming there from Austin called the 13th Floor Elevators. And they right. were probably, I would say, the most instrumental band in creating psychedelic music because they actually wrote songs based on the experience of taking LSD. And their, oh, wow. their lyricist, Tommy, Tommy Hall, had been a philosophy major at the University of Texas. And he you know, read all the great books of philosophy and, and distilled them into these songs that were about those concepts. So... They, in mm. fact, it's been said, and I'm pretty sure it's true, that every night they played, or almost every night they played, they did take LSD. So they <laughs> came into Houston, and you know we were like in 10th grade, and following them around the city wherever they play, and just really, they became our religion there for a while. Because what they were saying mm-hmm. was so amazing, especially for an uptight city like Houston, Texas in that era. So that, mm-hmm. that band was so just instrumental in making me who I am. I, I still can't ever give them the credit they deserve I so i went looking for pictures yeah i was reading that about that what you said about that about uh the is it rocky erickson rocky erickson he was their lead was, singer yeah he, uh-huh he was only 17 okay. when they started the band but tommy hall the the found, founder had this idea that he could spread his message through rock and roll and he didn't really play an instrument but he'd grown up in memphis so he remembered all the jug mm-hmm. players in memphis in the 50s and he's so a rocky I mean, excuse me, Tommy started playing the electric jug. Probably the <laughs> only band ever that had an electric jug, right? <laughs> an electric jug. That is great. But, wow. So that was okay. a band. But when I found those pictures, I found some from 66 in the club. We used to go see the men in Houston. And when I looked out into the audience, believe it or not, in one of the pictures, I was in the picture. And that oh, just really? kind of oh, gave wow. me chills. Yeah. 
like remembering at that point, you know, 50 years ago, what it was like to go to the La Maison nightclub and see the 134 elevator. So that was a biggie for me. But also, you know, I, I had to use Muddy Waters in so many ways. One of uh, mm-hmm. the foundations of rock and roll, just the music he played. I don't think without Muddy Waters, it would have been the Rolling Stones. And, you know, without the Rolling Stones, definitely rock and roll wouldn't have gone where it went. So those were kind of mm-hmm. the, the building blocks of what. But then I got into the 70s and really felt like, you know, there's bands like Doug Somm from Texas and mm-hmm. oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Jefferson Airplane and Grateful Dead and mm-hmm. all those just looking at bands that really propelled the music forward. That's the number one criteria I had for picking photos because I wanted bands that made rock and roll what it is like right now. And all those bands just kept it moving. You know, it never, the thing about rock and roll, it always changes. And there might be a few years where you think it sucks, but, you know, I always tell people, just hold on a minute, man, because it's going to change again. Like in the mid-70s, yeah. it became very corporate, but before you knew it, Ramones, Talking Heads, Television, you know, those kind of bands had totally shaken things up, and it felt brand new again. The Clash, so many bands mm-hmm. just came out of nowhere, and you all of a sudden you went like, man, this is amazing like again. A yeah, it was. It like is, and it, it happens over music. and over. Like grunge in the '90s, I felt kind of did that. You know, not always my style, but mm-hmm. it just comes back. And then, of course, you know, you factor in some hip hop, which really affects the culture. And mm-hmm. it happened. I saw you had some Run DMC in there. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I, I had to put them. I had to put them because mm-hmm. I feel like you know, rock and roll was really built on black music. You know, that's where it started. Mm-hmm. You know, Elvis Presley loving mm-hmm. Howlin' Wolf guys. I mean, that's where it really started. So you always have to pay attention, I think, to what black culture is do, doing because it will bleed in to what rock and roll is doing. And it should be a happy marriage. Mm-hmm. I mean, truly, if you boil it down, in the 60s, music of all kinds, soul music especially, was so influential in integrating the races. Because especially in the mm-hmm. South, you know, black and whites did not hang out except at concerts. And then they were there oh, together wow. watching black singers mm-hmm. So And I, I remember my friends going, you know, like, wow, man, these black people are cool because you just mm-hmm. they never went, were around them. And I think that really started the races coming together more than anything else during the 60s, which, as we know, was an era of uh, extreme racism, but also mm-hmm. the first signs mm-hmm. of integration. I mean, Bob Dylan, you know, went to Mississippi. He knew. Right. Right. Wow. Yeah. So, so important. That so important, not that. just as music, yeah. but as something that you know, kind of healed the country for a while. Unfortunately, with all the mayhem in the 70s, you know, it kind of split apart again. And, you know, look where we are now. We're splitting apart again. It's unbelievable. We I keep are, waiting yeah. for some music yeah. now to really make a difference in what's happening in right. the world. I'm not going to exactly. get political on you, but something has to change. And where is the change going to come from? Who's going to mm-hmm. bring us together? That's what I'm yeah. looking for. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's true. well, we don't have the, It'll we happen. Don't It'll have happen. the Beatles right now. Yeah, no, and but we don't maybe have they're out a lot there. of that. But there's maybe a new, they're oh, out there, you know, in their band. parents' garage. Yeah, there's a we new need band it. that's coming out that they're saying is going to be the new Led Zeppelin, and uh, I'm working on a project right now trying to get them on the air. Um, and uh, that's that's pretty cool. But um, I mean, we do need we do need a rebirth of some sort. I noticed you worked with Chris Isaac too on Vanguard. Um, what was that? Oh yeah, like? Chris Isaac. He exploded. incredible. Great. He, mm-hmm. Yeah, he. I, w- I was watching uh, a show last night, and there was an Alfa Romeo ad, and it had a new recording mm-hmm. of someone doing Wicked Wicked Game, and I, I thought two oh, wow. things. I thought like money money in the bank for Chris, and let's hope mm-hmm. they gave him a new Alfa Romeo. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, That's great. Yeah, he's a wonderful man. Wow. It, it's interesting because mm-hmm. one of my best friends in Austin during the '70s was a drummer named Kimmy, Kenny Dale Johnson. So, flash forward, uh, you know, whatever to 1981, and Kenny had moved mm-hmm. to San Francisco and I'd go visit him. And he said, "Oh, I'm playing with this new guy, man. You ought to come see mm-hmm. him." And went to see him, and it was Chris Isaac. Right when they started wow. that band, Silvertone. Kenny Johnson has been yep. with them since the early '80s, and the bass player Roly too. They're both, you know, Chris is that kind of guy. You know, he's like a true. American working class hero. Grew up in Stockton. Mm-hmm. Was a box uh, was a boxer a boxer in Japan before mm-hmm. he became mm-hmm. a singer. And just you know he's and he's, now he's acting. He sometimes he he's, he's acting. He's a great actor, great, great songwriter. So we had to, and, and the record we made on Vanguard was great because it was a nod to Sun Records in Memphis because mm-hmm. that's Chris's main 
influence. So we, he did some Elvis songs and some other songs from artists down there. Jerry Lee Lewis, he loves Jerry Lee Lewis. So it's just a mm-hmm. beautiful record to make because we, we honored the music that started so much of what we love now. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I know that you worked on quite a few different record labels. Um, how did they all differentiate to you? I mean, what was one to the other? I mean, did you have better time at yeah, others I'll, rather than? You know, I had a great time at all of them. Like Slash was a, a dream come true because we had mm-hmm. the real indie bands in Los Angeles, like the real mm-hmm. pivotal groups like X and the Germs and the Blasters and Los Lobos and bands mm-hmm. like that. And if, if you look at it like a farm team for the majors, because indies can concentrate more on smaller things. Major labels are built really for volume. So it's hard right. for them to take a small band and stick with it long enough to maybe build it into a, as big a band. So once Warner brothers bought slash, you know, it was the best of both worlds because we had a huge label Warner's to take care of the little bands that were on slash and turn them into other things like Los Lobos. Once they had that hit La Bamba in 87, they were like a mm-hmm, major league mm-hmm. band in the whole country, really around the world. Oh, yeah, big time. So and yeah. Warner Brothers, you know, was the biggest, big, big, big label, but it was also run by people who loved music so much, they never let anything go that they felt was worthwhile. Some hey, bands Bill, would just I got oh, really? to bring up something about Warner Brothers, which in my life, my music life, is that they were the, old, they were the first label that uh, – that let me in there as a freelancer, their attitude, and you know this, their attitude, well, if you work with Lou Reed, you could design for us. If you work for the Velvet Underground, you could design for us. If you work for the Sire Records, you could design for us. You know what I'm saying? It was mm-hmm. like, yeah, oh, yeah. They were, just what you're pointing up, what you're bringing out, too, they were, to me, they're one of the most iconic labels in freedom. I would call it like a freedom to people in a certain way, right? Well, they, they, they stood for that. Yeah. yeah, the head of it used to tell mm-hmm. me, like, you know, he said that the key to it all is having all kinds of music. He said you have to have the art bands so the real artists will look to you and go, like, you know, you'll take care of us. But then on the other hand, you had to have the money bands to pay mm-hmm. for the art bands. So it would be like they'd have Madonna and Van Halen and Fleetwood Mac, mm-hmm. but they would also have Laurie Anderson, you know, or right. Lou Reed, mm-hmm. or even smaller right. bands that you've never heard of. Because if you didn't have both, you – you know, it, it kind of felt like Columbia Records always had the mega, mega, mega. And that was all yeah. they wanted. Mm-hmm. Not always true, but Warner's was known as, you know, we were good to the artists. We were called the artist label. Because yeah, right. every artist on the label would tell their friends, like, you know, you ought to be on. I mean, REM signed the Warner Brothers because I think they had Neil Young. Mm-hmm. You know, look at Neil oh, Young. Wow. You know, he left Warner's yeah. for two or three years to be on Geff, and he went like, no, 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 I'm going back to Warner's. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so through all those years with Warner's, you know, even when the business started constricting after Napster and sales started going mm-hmm. down, uh, you know, Warner mm-hmm. stayed good. It really did. It, right, I left yeah. in 20, 2006. Still a great label. Mm-hmm. I think it's still a great label today. It's just the business model is so different. You know, you don't sell music. Oh. You give it away uh, in mm-hmm. hopes of mm-hmm. been selling sinks and licenses and merchandise and tickets. I mean, most of the oh, labels sure. now have what they call 360 deals. So when a label signs a band, they get a piece of everything the band gets a piece of. Mm-hmm. Besides they the, get the recordings. all the merch stuff and everything. Oh, yeah. Everything. They get, yeah. And, well, On the it's back a little, Yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of sad in a way, but, you know, without it, you wouldn't mm-hmm. have labels. You know, you have to keep the doors open. That's true. So, right. And then when I went to Vanguard, no, uh, it, was a, uh-huh. it was kind of a cool label, too, in the sense that it was, it was an indie kind of like Slash was, but it had a really, really, really rootsy heritage. You right. know, it started mm-hmm. out as a folk label. In fact, there's a funny story. I heard Vanguard's cool. Yeah, I heard Vanguard's Vanguard was very good. When mm-hmm. I was there, it was owned by Lawrence Welk's family, believe it or not. He had bought oh, it. Oh, wow. From, from I didn't two know guys that. named the Solomon me. Brothers. But there's a funny story. Elliot Roberts, you know, a really uh, infamous manager. He, his first client was Joni mm-hmm. Mitchell, and then his second client was Neil Young. I love Joni. So. Oh wow! So he found Joni. You know, he got Joni when she first started, and so he took her to Electra to get a deal. And they said, "Oh, no mm-hmm. thanks. You know, we're going into rock and roll." He took her to Vanguard, and they said, "No, no, no. We're getting out of folk music. You know, we're going into rock and roll." And the only mm-hmm. way Joni got to Warner Brothers was that David Crosby loved her so much. He got a meeting with Joni, the chairman of Warner's, really? Mo Austin, wow. and Mo said, Great "David, you know, story. we'll sign her, but you have to produce the first record." 
And that's how Joni got to do it. Everybody in New York, all the labels had t- turned it down. Wow. Can you Rachel believe that? Rachel is like great story. amazing. Her blue album. Oh my gosh. What oh. a great story to tell. Oh yeah. What a great story. Yeah. CSNY when they were together. Amazing. And even now just yeah. all the stuff that they do singly, David and then Steven and uh, just, Still Neil. You know, I mean, Neil will Graham forever and be. Photography. Uh-huh. Yeah. And Neil will always be on the edge. You know, like Neil said once, he said, when I'm in the middle of the road, I head for the ditch. You know, that's the way oh, Neil wow. goes. He just really? likes to be outside the norm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, he just said hey, it's no fun being Neil, in, the, yeah. in the middle. He's into vinyl, mm-hmm. isn't he, Bill? He's into vinyl. Oh, you have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to get somebody mm-hmm. on talking on a subject, it, you know, just mention <laughs> vinyl to Neil and like, the next know, six hours will fly by. <laughs> That's kind of cool. That's yeah. Oh, yeah. Really he great. believes in sound. Well, he wants it to yeah. sound good. Yeah. He wants it to sound like he hears it. And let's face it, CDs don't. They just don't. That's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, where did you go from Vanguard Where um, after that? Well, Concord bought Vanguard, so I went over to Concord for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And you know, I had some really good ideas, I felt, and uh, – to sign Lucas Nelson and some other bands, but uh, uh, you know the label. You cut out. Can, make that Alejandro. Oh, uh, can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, I now can we're hear okay. you now. Yeah. Yeah. So I made the Alejandro Escovedo record. Then I, I started working on some catalog stuff and did a really cool collection of Otis Redding live at the Whiskey in '66, which was kind of like a dream yeah. come true for me because the dates Otis played the Whiskey were two weeks after I'd seen him in Houston in 1966. Mm-hmm. And you know but what I found out about those shows were that, that, uh, that, that night Bob Dylan came to the whiskey to try to sell Otis doing the song he'd just written, Sad Out Lady of the Lowlands. Wow. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's really, just really like a cool. woman, but Otis, Otis felt there were too many words in it. <laughs> Really? Oh, wow. that's yeah. funny. That's a good story. That but, hey, really Bill, funny. you signed Joseph Arthur on Concord, right? Signed who? Joseph Arthur. Joseph Arthur. No, that was on Vanguard. That was oh, on sorry. Vanguard. I'm what? sorry. I got it confused. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that was an interesting story because, you know, when Lou Reed died in 2013, I, w- I was devastated. He He was the closest friend I ever made in the record business. I mean, Lou was a Mm -hmm. man of such graciousness and strength. Yes, he was tough. Yes, he could be volatile, but that was only because he believed in what he was doing. It wouldn't accept anything less than great. So when he Lou died, Mm -hmm. I kind of felt like I'd been talking to him about making a new record, but he just, he really finally got too sick to record. And after he died, I was pretty devastated, but uh, I knew the lady who, booked the tonight show Barbara Libas and she was friends with Joseph and she said, you know, Joseph mm. really likes Lou Reed. But Barbara and I had been talking about we should do a tribute album to Lou, but instead of trying to get all the superstars that knew Lou, I just thought like, I'll call Joseph, never talked to him before, and ask him mm. if he'll record a whole album of his favorite Lou Reed wow. songs. He did mm-hmm. it immediately in his home studio. And we put it out mm-hmm. and we just had the great the greatest title ever for it. You know what we called it? Lou, Lou. <laughs> yeah, you know what? That's all you had. That's mm-hmm. all you have to say to anybody about Lou. Lou, you didn't have to say Reed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Hey, Bill, I brought I brought Sylvia Reed to see Joseph Arthur at City Winery to meet him. You know, Sylvia, and uh, uh-huh. and and at the end of the set, I said, Sylvia, you got to hear him play Pale Blue Eyes. And wouldn't you know, the next song he sings is Pale Blue Eyes. And Sylvia absolutely cried in front of me. Cried in front of me and uh it was really emotional because he does such a great he has such great sense sensitivity i've known him for years you know we we actually designed a beautiful album for him but you know he's such a uh a sensitive artist and very spiritual right bill i mean that's he really he really is you know when, we, when he made the lou record um uh, for vanguard he recorded an extra song, and he said, well, the, you know, we can use it as a bonus track someday. And I said, what song, Joseph? He goes, like, Pale Blue Eyes. And we mastered oh the record. God. We mastered That's the record, it. and I, I, asked, I asked the mastering agent, Gavin Lurson, I said, you know, what do you think of bonus tracks or, or hidden tracks? He goes, like, no, no, no. He said, if it's a good song, put it on there. So we fortunately put Pale Blue Eyes on the Lou record, Thanks, straight God. up right in the middle of it. 
Oh, man. And then I, I called That's the booker cool. at uh, David Letterman, Sheila Rogers, and said, you yeah. know, because Lou always did Letterman. Lou and Letterman were close friends. Yeah, and so true. I asked mm-hmm. Sheila Rogers if uh, Joseph could come on and do Walk on the Wild Side. And she said, yeah, you know, I don't think Joseph had ever been on Letterman, but she said yes. And then she called me back the next day. Well, we got to bump it. You know, Lady Gaga is doing the show. And, you know, I almost went like, mm-hmm. you can't bump Joseph Arthur for Lady Gaga. And I thought like, yes, she can. But, she, but, but true to her word, and, and Sheila Rogers is one of the great people in the entertainment business. Mm-hmm. She said, well, we'll have him on the next night. And you know what happened the wow. next night? When wow. Peter Buck and Mike Mills from R.E.M. heard Joseph was doing that song on they Letterman, they, they flew on their own nickel. In wow. to so New York, great. did the song with him. We got a string section to to play "Walk on the Wild Side" with him. You know, Joseph slowed it down to this beautiful arrangement. And then at the end, you know, it's the end of the show. So David walked over to say uh, good night, Joseph. And then he looked at the cameraman. On there. I, started, I almost start crying telling you this story. He looked at the camera and said, "Good night, Lou." Oh my God, oh my I'm just God. crying Aww. right now, man. It just it just it just killed me that you know I. Well, I used used to go to Letterman with Lou and and hang out with him during the shows and you know I just felt like God you know I'll never get to do that again in my life I just I love Lou so much and he did and a great Lou, thing for way, me when you know, I in 2004 you know, uh, the new owners bought Warner's and they fired 300 people me yeah. one of them you know I felt like okay oh, my wow. time's up the next week the chairman called me and said do you want to leave Bill you you can stay I said I never wanted to leave are you kidding you know what I didn't <laughs> find out till after Lou had died that he'd written a letter oh. to the chairman saying, you know, you can't fire Bill Bentley. Wow. Oh, wow. And not only did, wow. not only did Lou do that, he never told me he did it. Now, how classy is oh, that? Oh, wow. Oh, see. That's heavy. That's amazing. Did, I know. did you get the letter? Do you have the letter? No, you know, I just, you? just just knowing uh, the producer and Lou's best mm-hmm. friend probably, Hal Wilner, told me that story mm-hmm. not long That's after Lou amazing. died. And I was, I was so proud but, not to uh, brag, but. The uh, big Arista box set that had every Lou record ever made for Arista and RCA. In the thank yous, there's like mm-hmm. 40 people, and I think I'm the only person in there that actually worked at a record label who was on. <laughs> wow. Because, oh, wow. you know, he had a history That's of blowing crazy. people out at the labels. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know if you know this, Bill, but, I, you know, I was very close with Joe. He called me up a lot, and he'd say, I'm going over to Lou's house, or that, yeah. uh, and one time I went to City Winery, and who's walking out is Lou, and he shakes my hand, and he smiles, mm-hmm. you know, and I go in. And he would follow Joseph. He was a big fan and brought him over to his house. I remember he had a birthday. Oh, yeah. Party. I, had the, I, I was sick that night. I couldn't go. And he called, Joseph called me up at night. He said, Spencer, you should have been there. It was incredible. And, you know, he was really close with him. A lot of people don't know that. He was really Oh, yeah. They go uh, riding bikes together. And one yeah. time Joseph was kind of drifting into things he shouldn't be doing, and Lou called him up, I think, and said, mm-hmm. like, you know, don't. Don't throw it away, Joseph. And wow. you know, mm-hmm. Lou Reed tells you to like, you know, come on, man, you can do this. And uh, <laughs> Lou, Lou is an inspiration to so many people. And I always she have was. to give Sylvia Reed a lot of credit too, because you know she managed Lou and really helped bringing back during the period of New York and after that, like you know Spencer. And you know, not yeah. many people cared. Not many people cared about Lou Reed. I mean, when he joined That's Warner true. Brothers. In 88, you know, I was like walking on clouds, and I'd go into people's offices babbling about how great this was, and people looked at me like I was on drugs. And their <laughs> right. response was, you know, Lou Reed doesn't <laughs> no. sell records anymore. I just wanted no. to go, what? Do you live on this planet? That's you don't crazy. know how important right. yeah. Lou Reed is? But and, that's and, the business. Bill, you know, when you're not selling records, people tend to discount you. And, Bill, that, that mm-hmm. big turning point was that New York album, Seymour Stein signing. That was the one. Right? That was the one, yeah. man. That was the one that brought it all back for Lou. And to be part yeah. of that, to watch Lou Reed make a like an incredible statement and be recognized for it, I mean, that's the highlight of my professional life to be involved in New York because, you know, Lou oh. Reed not only was back, he was badass, right. man. That album yeah. was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the Drella watching yeah, that, Lou and John Cale write those strange. songs, the Drella album. Oh, yeah, that's incredible, mm-hmm. too. And Sterling coming up to the parties and just, you know, it was just like, I used to pitch myself going like, how did this happen, man? <laughs> Why am I here? Wow. See, you know, it's amazing, Bill, that they could play the 93 tour together, the live tour that we packaged. That that That's an amazing story that all of them played on that tour, right? Yeah. Tour. And it was, it was supposed to go longer. You know, it did Europe. 
and they were coming yeah. back to America. And Sterling's line was, "Well, well, now my daughter can go to uh, Vassar." I think was his comment because he was going to have more money. Oh no! And they started talking about oh, wow. somebody brought up it wasn't me brought up like you guys should do MTV Unplugged or whatever the show was. And mm, Lou like went like, "Yeah, we'll do it, but I'm yeah. but I'm going to produce the show." And they're all like, uh, oh, no, Lou, we're going to produce the show. Oh, that's no, it. you know, the other mm-hmm. Velvets went no, and that's when it fell apart. And they never oh, toured America God. then. That's mm-hmm. incredible. That is a story I never wow. knew. Wow. Yeah. I was supposed to go is, see them, and when they, they played Austin in uh, 68, mm-hmm. and I was supposed to, 69, excuse me, and I was supposed to, I was going to go, but I was on probation then for marijuana. Uh, conviction and part of my probation was <laughs> I couldn't. Cali- I couldn't go. In California. <laughs> I was in Texas, man. In Texas at the time, oh, marijuana was a felony. It was five. It was well, five to life. And they and the, my probation officer. My probation officer said, "No, Bill, you can't go to that club. That's off limits for probation." So I'm missing no that. No way. One. Are you serious? Yep. I'm serious. But in Texas, I wasn't, I, I wasn't no going to go to prison. <laughs> well, I mean, marijuana, marijuana was marijuana and heroin were the same thing at that time in Texas. That is insane. Five year, five year minimum. You, really? Oh wow. wow! Because you can drive wow. around with a beer in your car in Texas now, right? A beer, and a, a beer and a gun was mandatory. You had to have it, or you'd get a ticket if you didn't have a gun. <laughs> oh my god! You don't even want to go there. That is insane. Well, you know, I think they're bringing that law back uh, now. <laughs> I know the freedom. Oh, wow. yeah. California's freedom. Well, you, I don't care what anybody says. You can bag on yeah, California, well, but there are freedoms here that aren't in the rest of the country. They're just ours. People are free. We do have a lot. We do have a lot. But you we know do. what's happening, though, because we're sanctuary cities. I don't know. Is LA a sanctuary city? If it's Los not, Angeles? it might as well be. Yeah, yeah, well, well, I think all of California is, but I know know Sonoma and San Francisco are, and uh, we've been having a lot of issues out here with that. And, uh, you know, because they're pulling people out, and I think they're suing California right now for that. We won't even go there, but they think that that's a lot of the reasons why we're having the shelter in place, like I had to announce in the beginning of our show. Um, Yeah, no, it's it's, it's uh, nuts, but... We have to relearn the lessons of the 60s, and, you know, what's going to happen yep. is it's, the kids are going to fix it because they realize that the old ways don't work. So it's going to take a few generations to work things out. But, yeah. uh, you know, I we grew did. up in the age we, of segregation, and we'll, we'll fix it. It's going to happen. Yeah. You know, there's that song. I don't – and it's so funny. I hear it in my head, and I, kn- I should know the name of it. You know that song, Stop, Children, What's That Sound? Everybody Look What's Going Down. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Stephen Spills and Buffalo Springfield. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. Buffalo, that like song is like totally what's going on right now. Exactly. And I'm waiting for some uh, new, so, for some artists to sort of hit that spirit in their new songs. I really, mm-hmm. I really think that's what's coming. You know, I hope to do volume two of this book. Uh, there's a oh, lot great. of artists I had to leave I, out, and uh, you should. And I'd like to do more younger artists that are really important. So, wish me luck. You know, that's my dream is to do it, and uh, I think I'll somehow I'll make it happen. Hey Bill, yeah, I got to well, tell you, know, I saw the buff, I saw the Buffalo Springfield mm-hmm. open up for the Strawberry Alarm Clock. How do you like that one? Oh my God, that's, that's great. That's kind of cool. <laughs> we just. We just had a big concert out here with the Buffalo Springfield uh, reunion out here in well in L.A. Did you go to that one? Did yes, and the, it was supposed to tour um, America too, but they canceled that. I don't know what happened on that one. Yeah, but, uh, sometimes it's hard I, to put the past back were, together. Yeah, yeah, but I think yeah. I think what they're doing though is they're reforming that. Um, since you're in L.A., I keep forgetting you're in L.A. Um, oh yeah, you know I went. I went to the first concert that David did when he got out of uh, his his wife, um, you know, uh, threw a party for him at all places, the whiskey. And when he just got out of rehab and he did a, oh. a concert at, at, at the whiskey a go-go and uh, Drew was there and a lot of other people were there and it was really a beautiful night. It was like all his close friends, you know, it was like his coming home party and he was so on spot on that night. Um, oh, really, really good. You know, 
Yeah. Great music is the greatest thing in the world. And I hate to say it, but yeah. I got to leave now. But my, my advice to everybody is just find the music you love and look and listen to it. Like your life depends on it and everything yeah. else will oh, yeah. work out. And, everything else will work out. Love, all the yep. troubles you have and whatever's bothering yep. you, it will all be okay. That's true. Well, we would love never give to up have on the music. Back. We would love Anytime. to have you back. Yeah, you got to come yeah, back, Bill. Yeah, I know you're working on. I know you're working on new projects and stuff. So we would love to yep. have you back. And with that, um, well, next time we are I have a new thing out or, today. Oh yeah. I will be there anytime yeah. you want. Cool. Yeah, and we're ending our show today with um, a song by. I think we have an Escovedo song that we're going to be playing. Yep, Alejandro Escovedo. We we recorded that up in Portland with Peter Buck and Scott McCoy and a great rhythm Mm -hmm. section. And I think Alejandro is one of the unsung heroes of modern rock. He really is. He's a human being, too. But he is. All the way through, man. He's the light on two legs. He's like, we're like close close friends right now. Willie Nile introduced me to him Mm -hmm. uh, years ago. He says, he says, hey, uh, Alejandro, you got to meet Spencer Drady, designed for the Ramones, and that started it. And now we're very close <laughs> friends. He's, a, he's right? the best. Is that he's a great story? Best. Willie Niles That's unreal. a great he's story. He's been on our show a lot, Willie. You know, it's like, but uh, he, he, Alejandro's got, his music is unreal, right? His music oh. is unbelievable. It's you know, beautiful, it was, it was just... and I have to tell you, the concert that I went and I saw him play, it was standing room only, and basically <laughs> everyone was just standing and um, – his wife was there selling at the merch table, and we were there, and his family all came in. It was just such a beautiful the feeling in the room. Oh. Man, he, he lights but, up but the that, world. Yep. And this song, I believe, is called Heartbeat Smile. Yeah, there you go. Yep. And there we go. Well, thank Spence, you for having me on, and we'll, to... we'll talk again. We love you, Bill. you, Bill. Rock and roll. You Have too, a man. Weekend, Adios. Guys. I'll see you, bro. See you, bro. Yep. Bye-bye. See you, Holly. Bye-bye. Ah, yes. So Spencer, I'm going to go into this song, Heartbeat Smile. And um, did you want to announce your um, vinyl show that you have coming up again? Spencer? Spencer, too. Okay. All right, guys. Have a great weekend. Don't drink and drive. This is Holly Steffi with Red Velvet Media signing off. And here you guys go.
Yeah. 